Hello everybody, this is episode 12 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies. It's the University of Liverpool Centre for Innovation in Education and I'm very happy, pleased to welcome three of our guests on our boat as we are rowing towards our islands. It might be a bit squeaky today as I'm told <laughs> with my chair, but uh, we will get there nevertheless. So we would love to start with introducing our three guests. Sure, so my name is Celia Popovich. I'm an associate professor at York University, which is in Canada, near Toronto. Um, my original discipline was English and American studies, so literature. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm Phil Moffat. I work at the Royal School of Military Engineering in Kent in the UK. I'm employed by an organisation called MKC Training. Um, I specialise in technology enhanced learning for defences, engineers and facilities managers. This is actually my second career. I was a practitioner in engineering defence until I was 40 and built infrastructure, water, wastewater, um, things like hospitals, airfields, disaster recovery and such. My last assignment in defence was as something called a sergeant major instructor. And at the time we were mapping a lot of what we delivered in engineering and management, we were mapping it to HE programmes um, with sponsoring universities. So I kind of fell into lecturing in higher education and really enjoyed it. Nice to meet you all. Hello, all. Uh, so I'm Richard Osborne. Um, currently I'm, I'm faculty learning technology lead at uh, UCL in London. Um, originally, I was actually a um, psychologist, so I studied psychology and funnily enough, I studied psychology at University College London, so it's kind of weird to be back at my alma mater uh, now as a member of staff rather than as a student. Yeah, brilliant. And I think we were talking about the coming back full circle, which might be a nice theme uh, again today. So. One of the things we discussed is the light bulb moments when you when you're teaching and when you feel the students are getting it. And we wanted you to share one of probably the many of these that you might have had over your careers. So we would love to hear your light bulb moments today. OK, so um, I was thinking about this and uh, I, I imagine that the one I'm going to say is one that many people share, um, but it was a light bulb moment for me in my own experience and then I just see it repeating and repeating and that that is the moment when um, I'm always embarrassed to say it because it seems so obvious now but the moment when I um, realized I was told and, and, and realized it for my own you know for myself viscerally the the difference between being teacher-centered and student-centered um, I, I had uh, made a move from being um, you know, I said earlier, my, my first uh, my degree, my first degree was in English and American literature. I then went seamlessly <laughs> into being um, a trainer for a, for a company in Birmingham in the UK, uh, teaching people from the motor trade how to use computer systems. So go figure, you know, absolutely no connection whatsoever. But anyway, that's where I found my life. And it really wasn't for me. I liked the education bit, I, as I later realised, but the relevance, I didn't. Anyway, I made a shift into becoming um, and in a teacher or instructor initially in FE college and then in universities and when I was in the FE college when I just started I was a sessional um, you know very insecure job prospects and all of that but and I also felt very insecure professionally because I thought I don't know how to do this all I know is how to be a student so I'll try and emulate what my instructors did anyway I found a course in those days it was pre PG certs and what have you um, and it was a City, uh, what was it called? Uh, City and Guilds um, certificate in adult education. And the first, in the first class, we were 
enlightened with this notion of being student-centered rather than teaching instructor-centered. And I was, it was such a shock for me to re realize, I just thought, oh my Lord, what have I been doing? Oh my goodness, those poor students, you know. Anyway, so that, I just think that's a fundamental shift, you know, and, that, and possibly now people come with that already ingrained. But for me, and this was the early 90s, so, you know, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> anyway, and as I say, I've since then, I've found in having conversations, but also in teaching sessions and what have you, the number of times that that's a light bulb moment for other people too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think other people have mentioned it in on earlier episode, but I was just going to ask Phil or Richard, is that does that resonate or with, with your experiences? Did you have similar moments or did you help others to have this moment? No, I'm with um, Celia. I actually got it from a, a more established colleague in teaching and learning. It, it sounds a bit romantic and naive, but I actually realised that I could learn loads from the uh, students I work with as well. Um, so just like um, a couple of weeks ago, there was, I mean, there's a really significant light bulb moment for almost all engineers, right? And I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, it's when we finally work out how fluid flows in a pipeline or duct, something called balloon, Bernoulli's principle. But most of us think when you put your thumb over the end of a garden hose that the pressure goes up, right? But it, it doesn't, it reduces. What increases is the velocity of the fluid. So the water goes faster, but at a lower pressure. And I, I'd expect anybody when they're first confronted with that to do what most of us are now doing and say, that's nonsense, that can't be right. And you can almost hear cogs turning inside our heads when, he, when we finally understand how it works. So if we take say, um, something like a piece of paper, and if you're listening on the podcast, I'm holding a piece of A4 paper on two corners. So the shortest edge is horizontal and sits just in front of your lower lip. Don't get a paper cut on your lip though, that'll smart, I expect. Now, when I purse my lips and blow hard, the velocity of the air will increase above the paper. Now, if Bernoulli was correct, that will mean the pressure will reduce above the paper and the paper will lift towards the ceiling, right? So, and if you've just seen me do that on the camera, you can try it at home, I assure you the paper will lift. So that's great. It's troublesome in a really powerful way. It's clearly a threshold concept. And to me, that's technology enhanced learning wrapped around that as well. It's in action. That piece of paper is a great example of a, a kind of powerfully banal technology, as Vincent Moscow would call it. So the, this idea that impactful technological artifacts and learning, they're not necessarily flashy and ostentatious and never before seen. They can be everyday and accessible and taken for granted. And the people I work with at the moment, a small group of 20 and 30 something engineers and facilities managers on a vocationally oriented HE program. They're absolutely geniuses with things like that. They've got such diverse backgrounds and experiences. They say, oh, hang on a minute, is it like this? They'll pull out something out of a box we've got in the labs, or they'll blow up a balloon to talk about gas walls and put it in the fridge and take it out to minutes later. Or they'll pass around bendy straws to show the rest of us about thrust and surge. Or they'll bring out a bike pump to talk about the laws of thermodynamics. They'll add value and pull concepts apart and argue and laugh, and it's fantastic and it's messy. But they, they really do start by that resistance and criticism and refusing to accept things, which is brilliant. Um, you know, and a student showed me that trick with a piece of paper that another student said, oh, yeah, that's why if you turn a shower on, right, the curtain billows inwards, it doesn't go outwards. That's why the socio-political system of a cycling peloton works, because they're drafting from each other, not being pushed away from each other. That's why fixed wing aircraft lift when they, you know, it's, it's fabulous. I don't want to sort of 
boy, you can sense I'm getting excited about it. But it all begins with this outright rejection of, I suppose, things that we'd often call common sense. And then one of them will show the rest of the colleagues and I'll think, oh, I'm going to I'm going to rob that. I'm going to take that for myself and, and, you know, make it real. That, that's that's what I'd really enjoy just jumping on to Celia's point there. Yeah, brilliant. I could see Richard nodding. <laughs> Well, I'm just thinking, you know, it always find weird crossovers when we do these kind of things, don't we? So there's Phil talking about that. I used to work for Western Helicopters. And so, you know, in the same principle, the blades are slightly bigger on top, so it creates low pressure, so the blade goes up and the helicopter flies. And before I joined education, so that was another life again. We all had multiple lives, I guess. But no, yeah, I mean, my light bulb stuff. Um, I love the simulation thing, the modelling thing. And that's not what I was going to talk about. You reminded me, I, mean, I left HE to join, to become a secondary school teacher, to try and transfer some of my skills and knowledge to that. And I love some of the stuff. I was a physics teacher. I love the physicality of some of that and the modelling and being able to, I'm reminded to see if celery, when you use that, you cut celery, put it in coloured water and see the colour rise up the invisible tubes inside it to show us an invisible structure. That's one thing I got into, into education technology for, I think, too, is, the ability to see the make the, vis, the invisible visible, I think, is one of the key strengths of what ed tech can possibly do for us. But fun enough, for my moment of um, you know the light bulb, I was thinking what struck me training to be learning to be a teacher and, and going through that process was that moment. I call it I call it the the wonderful hum of a classroom working independently. So when you've got to a point where all the students are just engaged and active and enjoying themselves and there's a slight buzz and a hum around the room and you think oh this worked <laughs> you know this is one of the lessons a good lesson because you think you can work really hard to structure it and try and get think this is going to work and it can fall apart you never really know until that happens but it's a lovely moment when it all just pans out and, and they, they get engaged how do you create that moment and as, as as you said i think that's also quite important that you need to you know, allow it potentially to fail as well. That's in it. And, and it's brilliant if it's working. But I guess it's a, it's a moment for us to recognize that, OK, there might be moments when it might not always work, but you can always then reflect on it and change things. And I think that takes some courage to do that. Well, I mean, I think the, why I got into this um, through the work of Gibson and affordances and ecological psychology, that was my focus. When I, when I first got into EdTech, I didn't, I didn't my education. I didn't understand the role of technology playing in education. Um, and I, so I studied, I, I took a PhD to try and work it out. Didn't really answer all the questions. Um, but I did learn a lot about education studying for that. And I think I very much became a social constructivist and I started to understand all those ideas about what it means to learn, what it means to educate, what the whole constructive position. And and picking up on, on the, the ecological side of it, for me, I very much like the phrase, I think it was Einstein's quote about, you know, I don't teach, um, I merely create the conditions upon which people learn. Um, so I'm very much sure follow that idea. It's that creating the right structures in the classroom, getting the right people in the right places, getting the content pitched to the right kind of level, and then letting those networks and those 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 um, connections sort of develop and work together. I mean, here at UCL, I'm so lucky to be so close into education. So Dan and Laura's conversational framework is a constant. I've got it pinned on the board next to me, actually. Uh, it's a constant reminder of to me of those flows between teacher, between students, between peers, between content and how those flows need to keep moving, keep happening and how we as educators construct the environment for those those flows to, to work. Yeah, great. Thank you. And Phil, I don't know whether we did we cover your light bulb moment. So do you want to? Um, I think I pretty much covered it all. It was oh. that, um, that notion, really. I, I 
kind of jumped onto uh, Celia's point, but mm -hmm. I think it was that notion when you realise how much you can learn yourself from um, students, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. So I think there's already this vibrant engagement and learning on this island. So let's talk about teaching props and pedagogies. If we forced you to choose a teaching prop or pedagogy that you would love to take to your treasure islands, what would it be? OK, so this connects to my first point about the student centred, and I'm not sure I'd interpret it in quite the same way. Um, as, as we've gone with it, not that I disagree with what's been said, but just going back to that, for me, student-centred is about, um, so when I was in that position of, of teaching, you know, and, and by the way, I'm sure this happened to lots of people, you know, um, as a session or you'd, you'd have maybe 24 hours notice of what you're going to teach. So the, the focus was immediately, oh my goodness, what is it I'm teaching? You know, and it was literature. So, okay, well, I know about that kind of, but how am I going to, and it, I was so worked up with, I've got to, I've got to read the book. I've got to be at least a page ahead. And, you know, and then it was suddenly that the light bulb moment for me was, it's not so much about the what, but the who and the how of the teaching. And suddenly, and that's what changed my perspective. So my prop for that, and something that I sort of, I, I didn't get this piece immediately, but it's certainly grown over the years. And that's to question the way that we assess, you know, how do we, how do we know that we've taught? How do we know the students have learned? Um, and for so much of my life, I've I've uh, I've, I've graded by um, I've, I've done that by grading papers, you know, by reading reams of work that students have written, put all their heart and soul into, or maybe just you know did as a very quick job, you know, from one extreme to the other. But whichever it is, then I rate, read it, I give a grade, and I have to say, in Canada, we don't have double marking even, so we don't even have a second person looking at it. That's the end of it, and that then gets returned to the student and you know digital age it's just in a bin somewhere or it's just living but no one ever sees it um and so when i came across the notion of authentic assessment that just made so much sense to me you know rather than this pointlessness of making people jump through hoops and do this exercise because in academia we we valorize writing over virtually anything else and something about i've got to prove to you the instructor that i've done what you want me to do how about if instead we can make this into some meaningful thing? So, um, so that's what I've been working on, you know, more more recently. So whether that's encouraging students to create a portfolio that they can then use when they're going to get a job in the field, for instance, or whether it's um, so. This last year, I taught a course on um, the way that higher education is represented in literature. So again, I'm, my coming back in full circle, you know, I'm back in the literature bit, even though my master's and doctorate are not in literature at all. Um, I love the course. It was completely self, um, you know, kind of, uh, it was it was a benefit to me as much as the students, I'm sure, because I just loved it, you know, reading all the, these books and the talking about them. But I was figuring out how could I make, how could I get them to do something that would be in some sense authentic and we can interpret authentic and authenticity in many ways, of course. But what I hit on was a, a, a book review. Um, so now we have a, a website and next year when I teach it again, I hope I'll add to it uh, with the students writing reviews of, of books in that genre. Um, so it's something that, that they can show to each other, but it can also have some meaningful value, you know, and to me that's that it just seems to, the more I think about it, the more I feel it's disrespectful to make people do some of the things that we ask them to do, you know, memorize the periodic table or um, work out these multiple choice questions. And um, and there'll be 10 in there that I didn't teach you, but that's just a trick. I mean, these are all things that I've heard teachers say, 
you know, why, why are you putting an MC, a, a multiple choice question on a topic you haven't taught? Well, that's to separate the good ones from the bad ones. And I remember being so shocked by that. And it just feels, as I say, there's a lack of respect in there somehow, but also a pointlessness. <laughs> anyway, so authentic assessment, that's my, that's my thing. Mm -hmm. And I think I was going to ask about defining authentic assessment because it can mean different things to different people. But I think you've done a, a lovely, a lovely job of your understanding um, or your your use. Richard, do you want to go next? Because I know that you have done things in work. Where you, I think, in your case, it was called work-based assessments. Yes, absolutely. And I was going to mention that because, of course, when we first met, we were both on projects, I think, and uh, exploring aspects of assessment. I was doing authentic assessment. To be honest, I mean, yeah, these days I tend to refer to it again using the classic term authentic assessment because it's so better, better understood uh, as a concept. I mean, we just try to define it using certain dimensions. But yeah, it's um, totally agree with you there. I think even in my faculty, I mean, let's say I work for maths and physical sciences. Um, you know, traditionally a heavy exam based, you know, um, approach for, for assessing summative assessment. But you know, we actually have a new strategy we're working on right now, which looks at authentic assessment. What are the key themes? Because we want to get, you know, more authenticity in, in there and see how it links through to, to the, the world of work and, and, and make sure these things are meaningful. Um, and the book review sounds great. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how we can need into what we're doing uh, after that. I'm going to have a chat later. Maybe. But the um, I actually want to talk about assessment as well in terms of my um, prop, um, but I was thinking more formative again. I think, you know, I was thinking what tools could I take and with my EdTech hat on, I was actually thinking, well, it might be nice to take um, formative assessment tools that I use happily as a teacher and still recommend and use now. UCL, we use Mentimeter, for example, there's Plikers, Kahoot, you know, and I like, what I like about these tools is it's always something for a purpose. I mean, Kahoot classically, I know some people think it's nuts, but if you've got a flagging class at five o'clock on, on the afternoon and you want to wake them up, it's not a bad tool. Uh, likewise, Socrative can be good for tracking individual performance and seeing how well individual students are, you know, are developing or not as the case would be. So you can take targeted intervention. Um, Plickers is a great little tool because you don't need student devices. They just hold up a QR code effectively or something similar. And uh, you as a teacher can then get a whole class summarized or formatively assessed in an instant. So, well, I see if you can get a class face to face. So yes, I think my tools my, would be these formative tools as well. I like to take um, to my desert island or treasure island, sorry. Yeah, great. Thank you, Richard. And Phil, what would be your teaching proper pedagogy that you would take? Yeah, sorry, I was just busy rewriting that um, multi-choice exam. I've written on something I haven't taught. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. I do entirely understand those points about assessment. I mean, engineering's locked into the age of the exam. You know, it's 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 horrible. Some of the stuff you see. Um, I see this from the other side of the fence as well as an academic accreditor with a professional engineering institution. Some of the QA things to get academic accreditation, you know, over the line for some of these courses, they're asking them to do things which are the pedagogically, I think. The three of you would go wild if you saw some of the stuff that uh, they're insisting on. So I do get it. I mean, if it's any consolation, slowly and surely enough of us are resisting and saying, come on, it's 2021. We don't you can't put 200 engineering students in a quiet room for four hours with one pen and a piece of paper. They're not because that's not um, as you, you know, as you would probably describe it authentic anyway let alone pedagogically sound, you know, for, for many other reasons. Um, 
I think related to some of that stuff we were discussing earlier, I'd, I'd probably take a pedagogy rather than a prop. I'd like to take expansive learning, um, where learners kind of strive to overcome existing embedded practices by being free to criticise and resist initially. That's not all they do, of course. They get questioning, analysing, modelling, examining, testing and implementing, reflecting and consolidating um, as a kind of iterative cycle and sub-iterations um, within that. The reason I wouldn't take necessarily what I'd call a prop, which, which to me sounds like something physical, is just because I reckon there'll be loads of teaching props around us. I think we could use the environment around us to learn about asset management, sustainability, embodied carbon, climatology, thermodynamics, ergonomics and each other. I think at some point fairly soon we'll be having a healthy debate about ethics when resources get a bit constrained and <laughs> when we get to know each other a bit better. But I think we'll have loads to get stuck into. I was looking earlier about, you know, Richard's tech trumps. I was reading about Celia's going remote projects in Toronto. So I, I reckon expansive learning will help us. You know, it's an alternative to this pretense of managerial consensus that we see in a lot of developmental strategies. This, this notion that I think is ridiculous that everybody has to consent to everything for something to succeed. Expansive learning kind of flips that on its head really. So sometimes with that pretense of consensus, we miss out on sort of lucrative problematic exchanges and the dissenting arguments, don't we? Which clearly us for are, are very free to have, but some students aren't. Um, and those dissenting voices can add loads of value. I do think a lot of HEIs are at risk of silencing dissent and of missing out on that. Erio Engerstrom calls expansive learning a way of learning what is not yet there. Um, and I think, you know, our immediate concerns on this island would probably be things like shelter, water, food and exploring our island in safety. But then there'll be plenty of problems we just haven't thought about when we're washed up, I suppose, and it'd be I think it'd be a bit disappointing if if us four of all people didn't start by having a, a little argument and a disagreement and questioning each other's plans um, and expansive learning had also open up that those dialectics like you know the dialectic of distance the closer we examine this predicament the less clear it actually becomes all of that great stuff so uh, sorry it's a long answer but my answer is expansive learning Sunday. yeah that's brilliant because i guess isn't that what we do in higher education as well to to get students into critical thinking and looking at the what's not there as well as what's there what do you think to what would could could we do things with expansive learning how you describe what do you think yes yeah, so actually expansive learning that's a that's a new term for me so i'm sort of um figuring out in part i think but that is that's what we do. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, in terms of English literature, I mean, I'm not an I'm not a literature professor. I'm an education professor, um, but but I, you know, whenever I get the chance, I bring in literature because that's always that's been. It's not just my what I've studied at undergrad. It's been a guiding principle. For, is that the right word? It's not. Really, anyway, um, literature has informed the way that I think and, you know, my, that's my go to place when I'm trying to understand the world is to look at how other people have seen it, because, you know, I feel like obviously we all have one life to live. But if you time you read a book, you're you're immersed in another life or lives. And so it gives you other perspectives. Um, and I loved what Phil said about what was that about uh, learning what we what doesn't yet exist. So you're creating something new. Um, and in fact, you know, in, in some situations you're 
discipline is growing as you're as you're engaging with it. And education, when I think about it, is a very relatively new uh, subject on the block, you know, and educational development even more so. And I'm that educational development is also my area of research and interest. So I can see how both education broadly and educational development has has built on what's gone before, but created while creating something new. Um, so definitely, I, 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 um, I'm, I'm going to look more into that. Thank you, Phil, for that. It's uh, um, a new avenue for me to to um, another set of, of lenses through which to to look at, at life. But on the, the Treasure Island, yeah, I mean, goodness, now we're getting into interdisciplinarity. We're getting into um, question. We could be getting into questioning what's knowledge, what's you know, epistemology, all of that. <laughs> we, we can um, we can really get ourselves. Um, back to back to basics yeah definitely and i mean celia you you also have um started or, or you've you've done a lot on putting some really useful re resources together for educational developers um on the padlet and on your site yeah the uh, educational developers thinking aloud um you notice the title. If anybody read, uh, listens to Radio Four, um, <laughs> BBC Radio Four, completely ripped off from uh, uh, Thinking Aloud, but uh, Laurie Taylor's think, Thinking Aloud. Anyway, it's a yeah, it's a website. What it started out being um, a book. Uh, my colleague Fiona Smart, who's at Edinburgh Napier, uh, and I were very conscious that there's very few texts available, particularly for people starting out in educational development. So we wanted to create a primer. Um, and then as we got into it, we decided that really a book wasn't really what we wanted. Uh, a website offered us a lot more potential to um, not only to add and to grow the site, but also to give some sort of um, interaction. So every page, there's room for people to comment. Not, not that every page has a comment on it, but some pages have promoted uh, engagement. Yeah, and just trying to bring together. Now, the way that we created that was we didn't we did write quite a lot of it because it was our project and we you know we wanted to give the time to it. Um, but we invited and and were approached by others who were willing to contribute. And as we move forward, we're hoping for more more of that. So it's a, a community effort, if you like. So it's both for and by and about educational development. Yeah, I'm not sure that helps with. I'm not sure I answered the the, the prompt that you gave me there, Tinder. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just really, I, I guess, um, it, the, these ideas, yeah, it's it's a good resource for, for colleagues as well. And I think it's in that spirit of sharing, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was going to leave our luxury item, but before that, um, I, I think I'd like to ask if we wanted to depict an archipelago of our islands and what sort of learning might be going on there or is there a way where our collective islands could barter between us? Um, so last year I was involved in a uh, teaching a course, it's a capstone course, um, offered up to students across the university. So we had students from um, about five different discipline areas all working together on, on different projects. But what I found most interesting about it was um, it wasn't just the students that were from a diff the different disciplines, so were the instructors. And we worked together and in, in Canadian, um, well, certainly my university, I shouldn't be too, you know, I haven't worked in other universities in Canada, but I'm pretty sure it's similar. And, and, uh, the way that the teaching is done is different from my experience of the UK. And that is that the individual instructor is given a course, which you probably call a module, I think. 
Um, and, and then the individual instructor has complete responsibility for that for that course. So those 50 students or 200, however many you have, uh, over a term, let's say, you decide everything from the content, the activities, the assignments, everything. And you probably don't get any, there's no second grading, as I said before, so no blind. So everything is down to you. So suddenly to be in an environment where you've got I think actually we had 10 of us all together working together on a on a on a course was really interesting and, and and I thought it would be easier than it was partly because my previous experience was to work often as a program part of the program team um in when I was in the UK but it was it was difficult but it was fascinating to see the different the differences and so we had engineers in there for example we had people from health people from education arts literature the lot and the different the, the uh, confusions that we would have where we thought we were talking about the same thing, you know, and using the same language and we went something totally different. And it took a while often. There were, there were several occasions where we got really quite frustrating because we didn't realise that when we thought we were talking about the same thing, we weren't. And everybody's perspectives, you know, we, we, we just didn't, it didn't occur to us that, you know, when we talked about you know, whatever it was, that there, that there would be a different way of seeing it. So it was so interesting. And then to see the students <laughs> working in teams as well and working through those same difficulties. Um, and, and one of the biggest ones was down to this notion of what's fact and fixed and definite and what's the answer, as opposed to how do we how do we want to explore this issue and what alternatives might there be? and you know, there's, there is no fixed notion of knowledge. There is no right answer. Well, the engineer is saying, yes, there is. If I've got a bridge that falls down, that's not right, is it? You know, <laughs> whereas a literature person is saying, you can't tell me that Tolstoy meant just that, because from my perspective, it means this, you know. So anyway, yeah, so I think we could, we've got potential for lots of enlightenment and probably loads of sulking and crossness, which is all also part of it. <laughs> I think it's what Phil was talking about and advocating as well that that's so interesting I think um, I think that's uh, evokes in me anyway that some of the PG cert or PG cap whatever programs people have and now you know some of those experiences when you get educators from different disciplines together trying to work out how they can look at uh, approach education from a scholarly angle and I think it leads to the same discussion about what's knowledge what's fact what how can you make judge yeah what about you, Richard or Phil? I'm just going to link into that. Uh, communities of practice was an interesting idea. Just maybe went about that idea. We were lucky enough to have Betty and Ming come and talk to us extra years ago now, and uh, he talked about going to a wine party with lots of people who knew a lot about wine. And he, he was talking about the way he understood all the language, you know, all the words. Sorry, he understood, but none of the concepts really. <laughs> like, how come this glass of wine has got legs? It hasn't got legs. <laughs> I just explained it very well and the idea that people use the same language but in a community of practice you use it in specialist ways which you don't really necessarily get um, so that was yeah I, I picked up on that one uh, I like you I haven't heard of the expansive um, uh, learning before so I'm going to need to look this up too but it sounds really interesting yeah I mean yeah it's it related to a point actually about interpretation of facts and knowledge and what do we know 
you know, even in my discipline and my, my work with, uh, you know, the chemists and the physicists and so on. But we were nothing the other day and we were talking about, you know, well, yeah, we they're all just models, you know, and the students don't get that sometimes. We have to educate the students that these are just models because, you know, we used to have the plum pudding model, for example, in science. And then we, you know, had the Rutherford model and then then they've got quantum mechanics and stuff. And the guys explained to me now, this is going way beyond my understanding. I got physics early on, no more. But they're saying now all that stuff's now rubbish, and we have another way of understanding this. Is say okay, so you know they're just model after model and interpretations, and they help us to gather some kind of knowledge about the universe and time, read both bits of bit bits of it back together in ways that are useful for us, don't we? Uh, which is eventually what the purpose of this thing is for, I suppose. But hey, but it's it's only the latest interpretation of what may or may not be true, isn't it? Even in, in, in learnings, in education itself, you know, we've got our own history of behaviorism, cognitivism, constructivism, you name it, and then so on and so forth in case. And I think, Sile, it's also what you said about it's it's a moving bus or whatever the metaphor is, that the discipline itself is changing. So your teacher, and as you said, Richard, is, things get added to it and it's always beyond. I mean, Phil, I was just wondering about expensive learning. Could you give us maybe a little insight or an episode and a learning episode that might be useful for any listeners who haven't come across this term before, how that might look? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's quite theoretically laden, but if I gave you an, uh, an example, it actually applies to um, some of the stuff I was scribbling, fur scribbling furiously while we were talking there about you know, things like communities of practice and this notion that legitimacy is applied to some but not others. And, and I know that in a, in a way that's not how everybody uses it, but some are at risk of that, particularly in my field, I have to say. Um, and I like this idea that, uh, you know, both Richard and Celia are, are suggesting where we, we acknowledge um, sometimes we do the least worst job um, in lecturing. We, we can't possibly do anything but expose the fact that some of these models are partial and the reductionist and knowledge itself is probably going to have a half-life. I think they struggle particularly with that in medicine, don't they, and things like environmental health where right at the start they even have to declare to a lot of students, you know, by the time you've finished a lot of what we've told you just simply won't be best practice anymore. And I think it's a shame that more of us um, don't do that. The idea of expansive learning is we've got this kind of iterative cycle, a spiral actually, so it won't come back to the same point, it'll go kind of further in or further out, so it's more of a spiral than a cycle. It, it is difficult to initiate, but in my view it's worth the additional effort, and the first bit is it's kind of empowering people to, um, to question uh, so it's kind of related to everything that we've been speaking about in a way that we resist and criticise. They're actually the expressions of um, what Engelstrom would also call transformative agency. So the transformative agency from the learner's perspective would be resistance and criticism as they are questioning the, the knowledge that's kind of being um, exposed, I suppose. And then we aggravate any contradictions in those. So it is Marxist and that there's use, uh, use value and exchange value contradictions in some of this knowledge. So, for example, should a student 
truly question something and exhibit what they think or should they maybe keep quiet so that they might perform better in that classroom that would be a kind of typical use versus exchange value i suppose from an uh, epistemological sense from an engineering sense should they just knuckle down and try hard so that they can get a better living for themselves or should they actually say actually i don't think halo carbon refrigerants are a good idea because they damage the environment. So there's always that kind of um, use versus exchange value primary contradiction going on. What we can then do in an expansive cycle, even though it's a spiral, is we can kind of start to analyse any proposals. We can then model them typically using a, a model of an activity system. Uh, so we have that production in that activity system, a top triangle, if you like. So we've got people trying to achieve an object, but they're mediated by artefacts, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, it's not really a conversation for radio, I have to say. Um, but in this mediating triangle, we've got people on one side, we've got what they want to learn on the other side of the baseline, if you like. And the top point of the triangle is those mediating artefacts, which can be tools and they'll shape the world and they can be signs and they'll shape the mind. So as an example, if you're learning how to cut timber, a saw will shape the world, right? But as you're cutting that timber, you're learning about the propensity of grain to split, which is shaping your mind. Uh, and that's a very simplistic notion. I'm sure Richard and Celia would you know, be able to come up with um, similar applications in their own world, which are uh, a, a bit more um, epistemologically robust. What we do then is we examine what we've come up with, we test and implement it, uh, we reflect on it and then we continue arguing and debating and all that great stuff. And then as we're consolidating, we'll be coming back to the start point of that um, cycle, but on a slightly different point. So we're kind of iterating into or out of uh, the model. Yeah, I think, thanks, Phil. I think you did a really good job explaining. I guess in, in my mind, it it's also if we if we keep it the rowing to our treasure island pedagogies we spoke a lot today about uh, i suppose equipping the students to be able to do the rowing and we might understand rowing or how you know we might say row this way but really students might be rowing a different way and it's almost stepping back and letting control and I, I just can imagine that rowing can take them in different shapes as well and i think that will be the beauty of it and then feel you can also in expensive learning, you can also teach them about uh, where we are rowing, why are we rowing? And so there's so, so many. Yeah, I, I'm sure I could take the analogy further. But yeah, let's, uh, Annalisa yeah. Sanino, just I know, I know we need to move on, but Annalisa Sanino also writes a lot about expansive learning and uh, double stimulation as well, which is one of the techniques to get um, learners you know, really engaging in that. She uses this analogy of forward anchoring as well. So you can kind of, you know, you can throw an anchor forward of a boat and then use it to pull you towards the anchor. Um, that kind of so that you, there are a lot of uh, similar analogies, it thinks. To yeah. <laughs> as if, especially for this podcast. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. So now uh, we've we've described lots of engagement. There's lots of teaching. You've been excellent educators, clearly passionate about your uh, work. So what would be your luxury item? OK, so this would be mine. So this is some knitting. <laughs> so as I've grown the up. The pattern for those who haven't seen it. Uh, what's <laughs> it going to be? 
<laughs> Not a good example for, for a podcast. Yeah, I just held up some fair iron knitting. I'm making a cardigan. It's taking forever. Um, so I'm I'm quite um, I've been quite emboldened by some of the um, reclaiming of of traditional female crafts. Um, you know, it's always people who knit. It's always been a bit. And by the way, it's not just women who knit, but, you know, traditionally and stereotypically, it's supposed to be a, a women's sort of, um, you know, area. And, you know, even the language we use, you know, when people say, you know, you should stick to the knitting or, you know, get back and do your knitting. It's kind of disparaging. Well, I've always knitted and I've always, uh, up until fairly recently, I've tended to keep that fairly quiet. You know, it's just what I do privately. But during the lockdown, um, almost as soon as it started, actually, I thought, Everyone's going to be so isolated. I certainly am. I was at my cottage in um, um, just northeast of uh, of Toronto. I'd gone there for a week, and I stayed. <laughs> I stayed there for months and months, and then the months became years. Anyway, I did have a big supply of wool and knitting needles, so I kind of got a feeling of, you know, a, a sort of trial run for this uh, treasure island of being stuck somewhere. And uh, and the knitting's what kind of kept me sane. I think if 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 I did remain sane. And the thing about knitting, it's um, you know, apart from all those things I just said, it's it's something you do on your own. But in the in the pandemic, I set up a, or invited people from CEDA and EDC, so those are the educational development um, professional groups in Canada and the UK. Those are my two sort of identities, I suppose. Um, and I had about over 60 people say, yeah, I want to do that. So anyway, every week now we meet for two hours and do crafting. It kind of expanded a bit. But the whole thing with the, the knitting, I'm thinking more and more about it. And I, mean, I might be stretching an analogy, but there's something about knitting that's, that's uh, an individual thing, but you produce an artefact, right? Even if it's something that's never used, you know, you give it to your to, to one of your children and they never wear it. I'm calling out my own kids on this. Um, <laughs> or it becomes a, a beloved sweater or whatever. Um, but it's very private. But that's how teaching is as well, I think. You know, I think that we, we're very isolated, can be very isolated and it, it, on our own, even though we're working with other human beings, you know. Um, and it's when you get together and start comparing patterns, comparing <laughs> wools, you know, you can eat. It's not a difficult leap to take that to comparing approaches to teaching or content or, you know, um, I don't know, even when we were talking, uh, you know, Rich and Phil talking about the different software and, and so on, you know, that all that, all of these things link when you start talking to other people, suddenly the whole thing just changes. And now now I might make some Aaron or I might do some other technique that I'd never thought about or I've discovered there's even a different type of um fiber i didn't even know was, was there you know anyway so you can take these things too far but i do think that there's an awful lot in there that could be explored in terms of what you value what is valued by society what things are considered trivial and unimportant and when looked at through a different lens might be really really important skills to have so and also i just like doing it so <laughs> yeah brilliant i think and also what you said is the power of the community as well um, but also we've come back to the importance of language. I don't know how in Canada, but guerrilla knitting, have you seen some of the, well, so here, you, you know, you obviously, have, it can become a form of activism as well, uh, knitting, yeah. Absolutely, in lots of ways. So that guerrilla knitting, that's where people go and knit or crochet and uh, cover trees or um, fences or, you know, just public spaces with knitting. I've never really, that, never really appealed to me but simply because I'm selfish about my stuff when I was like, <laughs> it's going to be out there in the rain and it's just going to get you know 
birds on it and I don't know I'd rather have something I actually wear but um but there's that but there's other uh, ways that it's uh, activism as well for example um when Donald Trump um became um pr uh, president I can hardly get the words out can I but <laughs> when when he became president and some of the, the you know some of the, the the marches by women when wearing the pink hats they were all hand knitted and people who couldn't go created the nat the hats and sent them to other people who could so again that sort of sense of, of a collective um statement that other people that many people could con contribute to even if they couldn't be there physically yeah mm -hmm. Lovely. And I think, again, the pattern, I mean, there's lots of talk about pedagogical patterns, Diana Laurie-Rad's work, and not, you know, learning design, that physical manifestation of, of learning design is, is lovely. But yeah, obviously, it's just a lovely thing to do as well. So I think we definitely can let you have knitting on the island. <laughs> what about Richard or Phil? What about your luxury items? Um, yeah, and I like the knitting thing too because it's one way, isn't it? You can't go back, I suppose, can you? It's very hard to really, un it's like learning too. It's like we think we always struggle with research, don't we, into learning because once you've done a learning scenario, you can't just have another control group. It doesn't work the same way. Um, anyway, I'm off topic. Um, I've put down the woods for mine because I like foraging for mushrooms. So I, I want some woods somewhere I can disappear to. I disappeared there yesterday with my family and we found some, some lovely chanterelles and some hedgehog mushrooms. Um, I find it's no, it's, we all know the benefits of being out in nature. So it's good just to be out in the fresh air, wandering around in the trees. But there's something about mushrooming too, which it just gets me. It's hard. It's, I self-taught myself. It can be bloody dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, you know, if you eat the wrong mushroom, you will die. Uh, and there's lots of science behind it because the structures of mushrooms are so fascinating. They're all so different, but there's all, there is lots of structure, lots of patterns. Again, uh, funnily enough. And I think, but one other, I was just reflecting on this yesterday. Thinking, why, why, why else do I love it? I love the fact that I didn't think I, I could never finish it. It's like it's it's not something I could ever master because there's just too many mushrooms and there's too many woods and too many places to go. And that's <laughs> kind of what makes it pleasurable. If it was something I could master, I'd probably get obsessive about it. Plus, I'd eat the things I've left out but too, which is always quite hard. Brilliant. And I guess it would be a brilliant skill on the island as well. How do you self-teach yourself, especially when you might have two mushrooms looking quite similar? That Yeah, it's a tricky How one. do you take the risk or not? Well, I mean, I self-taught, but I have been to lots of talks and, and met experts and had chats and book, books and, and studied. And, you know, you learn lots, of course, from, from self-studying that way. I mean, you learn about different structures. You learn there are different groups and families. And then you, you mean, but the best advice I ever got, if anyone's thinking of doing this, is um, learn all the bad ones first. And make sure you know. <laughs> so, because, you know, that's the worst thing. I saw Death Cap yesterday in the woods and Death Cap will absolutely kill you. It's not a joke. So, yeah, make sure you know what the bad ones are. And then things like chanterelles. You can't really go wrong with them, so yeah. It's but it's it's nice thing to to learn. I've always every time I think I've taught a science class, at one point with new students, I always talk about mushrooms and scare the woodies off them as well at the same time. <laughs> well, it's good to know what's good for you and what's not good for you. So definitely useful. Thank you. What about you, Phil? Um, luxury item. I'm going to lower the intellectual tone with my choice. Of that. I was going to say one of these old classics on teaching and learning on the shelf behind me that that kind of really oh, needs right. to be read. I was um I was trying to pick one just before we started the call and I came up with this uh, cultural psychology by Michael Cole just because I reference it a lot 
and I love reading his work, but every time I pick it up, I find another bit of gold dust, you know. But then I thought, oh, a luxury item. Um, and I can't go without Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. I don't think it was the first album I ever bought. I saved and saved and saved my wages and then asked if I could use my grand's record player to listen to it. So I'd really like to take that and something to listen it, to it on if possible. I know vinyl isn't going to be the most practical choice, maybe if I could ask you, Tundi, for a solar charged or micro hydro charged MP4 player or something like that. If that's yeah, right. I think as long as it's hand chargeable or something like that. Although I know we have allowed people to take Wi-Fi to the island just because that's how we do teaching now. And so hopefully you can siphon off some of the Wi-Fi, but definitely for gadgets, it's better to have them sustainable. There'll be loads of um, trade deals to do, though, won't there? I love that saying you came out with from an island to an archipelago um i listened to some of those other um calls particularly the earlier ones and i don't not just amongst ourselves on here but there'll be a lot of trading with all those other islands over there too weren't there those islanders you've interviewed previously yeah, yeah. is there anything that you would want to so i think already your luxury items would make a lovely ensemble so knitting with some music and a bit of foraging before and after i think that that sounds like a lovely autumnal um weekend <laughs> well i was roaring about uh, in one of those early ones um there was discussion of one of the phantom heads for dentistry I think a lot of islanders have taken chocolate, so it seems like there'll be a bit of chocolate to trade. Um, <laughs> and was coffee. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be greater than the sum of the parts, won't we, I suppose. I, I, I honestly I, think I could get wholesome water for everybody relatively quickly. I honestly think I could get sanitation and shelter set up, but I'd have to I'll ask for help with creative things, food for the soul, poetry. I'll be rubbish at things like music and art and asking people about feelings. And none of you will ever want to see me dance, however long we're there. My dancing's not going to be good for anybody's eyes. But if I knock up a shelter with water and ensuite for each of us, hopefully I could swap that for some food for the soul, I think. And even just sitting watching See the Inet would, would suit me. I used to watch people knitting. It's, like, it's magical to watch, isn't it? It's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I did hear somebody describe it as, uh, it, uh, I think it was their partner said that, that the person who was a knitter was a witch because they took two sticks and some wool and they just magicked it into a sweater. You know? <laughs> so I think we I'm definitely going to have a lovely uh, experience, brilliant learning and lovely learning experience and a lovely downtime on this island. So thank you so much, all of you, for coming on uh, to the podcast and loved uh, our discussions. And let's roll away, uh, go, go, go forward and backwards on the island with the anchors uh, in different places. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you so much. That was such fun. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.